Okay, Pasa Mufasa. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. And today we've got distinguished journalist and advocate for a decolonized psychedelic movement. We've got Preeti Simran Sethi in the house. What I'm really zeroing in on is the ways in which on the both clinical and ceremonial sides of psychedelics, we see this kind of appropriation of various healing and philosophical and faith modalities that are connected to Asia without any sort of acknowledgement of the context. Now, obviously we also see this for indigenous people and that's another like massive blind spot in the Renaissance. It's like, well, you know, all of a sudden there's this Columbusing going on often where it's like everything was discovered in a lab at Harvard or something like that. And I'm really interested in, in presenting and understanding and sharing and, and living and supporting a more comprehensive picture of that. I really appreciate this discourse and I hope that you all do as well. Shout out to MicroBoost Mushroom Supplements. That's M-Y-C-R-O-B-O-O-S-T, Mushroom Supplements, MicroBoost, for sponsoring this episode of the Mycopreneur Podcast. Their mushroom coffee and soft gel capsules using fruiting body mushroom extracts have been a game changer for me. And please remember to rate and review this episode wherever you're listening, because it really does help. Without further ado, let's get the show on the road. Okay, Pasa Mufasa! What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. We've got Preeti Simran Sethi in the house. Writer and independent academic, welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. How are things in your world today, Preeti? Hey, Dennis, thank you. Things are going well. Uh, considering the state of the world, things are going as okay as they can be. Wild times, we both know it. And we had a chance to interface briefly in Denver at Psychedelic Science. And I got to see you up on stage rocking it there and have followed some of your journalism that you've been doing. So I want to note first and foremost that I'm a huge fan of what you're putting out. Have a lot of respect for someone who sticks with journalism as long as you have. I think you're probably 20 years plus into it right now. And you've been writing about the psychedelic space as of late. So maybe that's a good entry point to our conversation. I'm curious how your background as a journalist informs your approach to the psychedelic space. Yeah, you bet. And thank you. Thank you for that uh, nod on my journalism. Calling myself more and more, I, I've written books and I'm moving toward the term of journalism, uh, away from journalism to writing, because I think, you know, the paradigm of journalism, I've been a journalism professor, you know, tenured journalism professor and a journalist and have journalism fellowships. Um, I think these times call for maybe stepping outside of uh sort of so-called stance of neutrality and, and speaking about the truths that we feel. So, um, so I guess just to say that, like, maybe some folks would say, as I speak my truths and advocate for certain issues that I'm stepping a little bit away from journalism, but I feel like the, the truest tenet of journalism is to be transparent about how we feel and where we stand. And for me, what, journalism and storytelling more broadly have done is helped me to really um, kind of make sense of the experiences I've had. And I've also played a really strong role in how I got connected to psychedelics, which was having worked with them recreationally for decades, you know, since my teens on. And then um, 
and also since my team's on managing um, depression and anxiety, and then really finding that point where both of these things intersected and turning towards psychedelics for healing, using my journalistic mind to sort of understand, you know, my background's in like science journalism and environmental journalism, um, and just kind of journalism and social change. But I used that when I was approaching psychedelics and it was like, okay, well, so, you know, um, you know, changes in the default mode network. Okay. Got it. You know, mystical experiences check, but in this very sort of detached way is how I went into working with psychedelics for healing. And, and, you know, what wasn't revealed there was you'll feel communion with your father who you haven't felt a connection to, you know, in eight years since he passed away. I guess at that point it had been closer to seven. Um, you'll feel forgiveness from your grandmother. Like that the depth of healing was something that transcended what I had read about. Um, and that's sort of what's turned me, you know, it's a big conversation. One of the, the journalistic things I have right now is that I'm really grateful to be the recipient of the, um, the Ferris Berkeley Psychedelic Journalism Fellowship. And a really alive question and conversation in that fellowship is around, like, how do we report on psychedelics responsibly? And um, for me, because this is an interest that's come through lived experience, I feel a really strong um, pull to to do this work through the lens of like the changes that I have had and the changes that my closest family members have had, the healing that has occurred. And I think what that does is actually builds a bridge to a better understanding of the potential for psychedelics. Again, underscoring like not for everyone, but but for me, it was like a lot of the demands of being a journalist, of being someone who was in the public eye, specifically being recognized for a lot of the environmental journalism I did, actually contributed to the depression and anxiety that I experienced. So it's like journalism touches in in a number of ways. It's something that I use as a vehicle for talking about psychedelics. It's something that in many ways led me to psychedelics. And it's something that will inform the future work that I do, holding space for people as they go through their experiences. Um, I'm in training programs right now. And and um, and also in graduate school right now. And for me, it's really understanding how this thing that I've done, as you said, for decades will really inform how I can be of best support to people. And I really think it's the journalistic skills of paying attention to detail, like noticing very small shifts in the world, you know, noticing how someone holds their face or, you know, flicks their pen or what's happening in an environment, you know, so critical for someone who's going to be holding space or um, listening, you know, the quality of deep listening and being attentive to someone as they share what's on their heart or in their minds as they, you know, are either in a psychedelic experience or integrating. I was also a part of the equity cohort at Fireside Project. So, so really being able to tap into that um, and then helping people make sense of those experiences as a journalist, like, Oftentimes I'm pulling disparate threads, right? And trying to make information like accessible to people. So I feel like that's also a quality that I that I will bring to to the present work I'm doing and to the future work as well. Wonderful. I really, really like hosting writers on the podcast because as a dear friend of mine has phrased it, writing is clear thinking. When you're writing well, you're thinking, and we need clear thinking right now. We have a very convoluted ecosystem in the world at large, it feels like, and a lot of signal to noise ratio, or rather, you know, more noise to signal. And I think writers and journalists can help tease apart that signal from the noise. 
And I've especially noticed with psychedelics, with an emerging industry, all of the excitement around it, there's a lot of yes people, or as we call them, yes men, that is essentially maybe more PR than actual journalism. So I'm really trying to, to amplify and build with people who are more nuanced. And I noticed that there's a cognitive dissonance at large in public perception around drug policy and around psychedelics. It's a lot of super in favor of it. Psychedelics are gonna heal your PTSD. It's the future of medicine and mental health. And then the other side is this prohibitionist rhetoric. And I really like centrist viewpoints a lot of the time where people are kind of you know individually analyzing different scenarios companies, et cetera. So it's just one thought I wanted to offer. So I really appreciate that. And yes, it does extend to being very perceptive, which is obviously a huge part of the psychedelic experience and being part of a group experience is being very perceptive and attuned to these little changes, these little dynamics. So I suppose writers definitely can help shape a more equitable and impactful and meaningful future for psychedelics, I would hope. It's my hope. And in, in that regard, I'd be curious about your take on some of the blind spots of the psychedelic renaissance, which in itself is kind of a, a strange title, but nevertheless one that constantly gets rolled out when speaking about emergent psychedelic spaces. What are some of the blind spots that we're not paying attention to collectively? Well, I'm going to... Um... I'm going to center the work that I'm doing right now. There's, there are a lot of blind spots. There are a lot of blind spots. And I, I hear you so clearly when you, when you mention this um, goal of being more centrist and being a little bit more like balanced and like, what can these substances actually offer us? For me, what's been really interesting from where I stand, like just owning my position, you know, as a like 53 year old immigrant to the United States of South Asian descent, you know, um, bisexual, neurodivergent, like trying to just get through um, and do whatever I can to ensure that people heal from the pain that they're enduring in, in whatever ways are healthy and, um, and possible. And I think for me, what's been really challenging is that, you know, you spoke of this notion of of renaissance and um, I mean, the so-called renaissance has really left out, not only left out a lot of people, like when we think of this from a financial perspective, um, but when we look at this from an ethno-racial perspective, it's this kind of strange thing. And I, you know, I'm a South Asian woman and I started a nonprofit for Asians and psychedelics, the Asian Psychedelic Collective. So I'm really like hyper-focused on this group of people, which might sound niche to some people, but just to kind of underscore fastest growing ethno-racial group in the United States, two out of three people on the planet. So a very big group of people is kind of in my purview. And, um, and what I'm really sort of zeroing in on is the ways in which, as one major blind spot, the ways in which on the both clinical and ceremonial sides of psychedelics, we see um, this kind of uh, appropriation of various um, healing and philosophical and faith modalities that are connected to Asia without any sort of acknowledgement of the context. Now, 
obviously we also see this for indigenous people and that's another like massive blind spot in the renaissance it's like well you know all of a sudden there's this columbusing going on often where it's like everything was discovered in a lab at harvard or something like that and and the or you know like maria sabina the curandera you know from from mexico is mentioned one whole time in the beginning of a book for a paragraph and then the remaining 300 pages are about like a bunch of white guys in white lab coats you know and i'm i'm really interested in in presenting and understanding and sharing and, and living and supporting a more comprehensive picture of that. Where does this story begin? Who is part of this story? What types of people have been stewarding, you know, earth medicines is what I like to call them for time immemorial. How can we honor and recognize and support them? And then how can we really look at those practices that are supporting the way psychedelics are emerging now. So I think of something like breathwork, right? Both Stan and Christina Groff have acknowledged like the influence of pranayam that comes from yoga, right? That comes from Hinduism, that comes from a practice that is ancient and that is, you know, comes from a place. The use of mandala also in holotropic breathwork. The the naming of the so-called exotic music that's exotic to some, but like comes again from a particular place what we now, you know, what has been rebranded as mindfulness, which is meditation, again, from, you know, with Buddhist and Hindu origins, like, these are the things that just get not only erased, but as we see again, um, for indigenous peoples, they get commercialized. So the people who are benefiting from these offerings have completely um, absolved themselves of any sort of awareness of where they come from. And then also, like, taken those practices and said, now I'm going to trademark them. And now I'm going to take them on as my own and rebrand them and make money off of them. So I think it's, you know, we can see that happening with the psychedelic medicines themselves, but I think we can also see there's a whole like constellation where the same things are happening. And then my deeper concern is that then these very people whose practices and medicines are being used don't feel like they're part of this renaissance, like they're not invited in, they're not supported. You know, there are, of course, efforts like being made like, oh, we're trying to make this, you know, like less expensive, which is so critical um, as someone who's also like a graduate student again for the second time and really needing those financial, that financial support, but also like access, um, you know, availability doesn't equal access. There's a cultural piece of that that I think is also critical. So when I roll up in a ceremony and I'm the only you know, person of color in the space, or I'm the only Asian person, South Asian person in the space, yet I'm seeing people give me a like namaste, you know, and I'm watching someone holding a mala and I'm listening to like a mispronounced like Gurmukhi mantra that my grandmother used to chant. And I'm seeing a Buddha, like a disembodied Buddha on the altar, you know, or a Ganesh in the bathroom. like. I, I'm just, you know, these are the things that make me feel like I, part of me belongs, but not the totality of me belongs. So I think that's a really critical um, part of the work that I'm trying to do is remind people that healing is our birthright, that these practices come from, you know, all over the world um, and that they belong to us as well. And specific for Asian peoples, you know, both drug use and mental health have been so stigmatized, stigmatized in our community that it's really important for me to be like outspoken about that. Even the challenges I've faced just to help people understand that like they're not alone. 
and that there are resources such as psychedelics that could be potentially helpful. You know, some of the sentiments you just expressed remind me of a great thinker, Rupa Maria, who I was connected to in the Bay Area. I don't know if you're familiar with her. And Naomi Klein is someone I read a lot of. So I was exposed to a lot more like radical leftist thinking in terms of the role of globalization and its actual impacts. And when these different practices and traditions start to get co-opted and rebranded, right, as like yoga retreats. And now you have these psychedelic yoga retreats in El Salvador, so on and so forth. It's like very postmodern and it kind of cherry picks from these traditions in a lot of ways and presents them as here's this neat little thing that you can do for a, you know, a week down in Costa Rica, you can do it. So one of the things I've noticed on the conference circuit this year, which I honestly didn't know existed until about a year and a half ago. And then I started getting invited and I, I realized, whoa, there's all these psychedelic conferences and you see a lot of the same people at all of them. Well, now they're starting to expand to include biotech and longevity. And what I see as one of these possible trajectories forward is the hyper-individualization of healing. This idea that health can be hyper-individualized and it's you that's pathologized as an individual and really not acknowledging the role of systemic issues and in many ways bypassing them. So I'd just be curious if you could extend that line of thinking. Is that something you've noticed about this idea that you can buy your way out of you know a shitty economic and social situation and you can just create paradise for you as a hyper-individual while the collective continues to face those issues? Right, and you can just plop yourself down anywhere because I've seen your videos, right? Love them so much. And you're just all of a sudden in Bali, like tripping your balls off and you are all good, right? And you are at one with everything, but you're not at one with the poverty. You're not at one with white supremacy. You're not at one with capitalism. You're not, or you're maybe deeply entrenched in capitalism. I don't know, but you're not seeing the suffering of the people around you. You're not recognizing the humanity of the people around you. And I think that that's really what you're speaking to. Like all healing is collective. All healing, I truly also believe more and more is intergenerational. Like we didn't show up, like we are impacted by the environment that we come from, right? We talk a lot in psychedelics about set and setting, but I also, you know, want to draw out that concept of matrix, like this notion that we come from somewhere, we're going to go to somewhere, right? We're going to go back to a place and that that informs and shapes what our experience will be like and what the quality of our healing will be. So I think like when I'm hearing you talk about this and very grateful Naomi endorsed my last book. She wrote a blurb for me and I'm in the process of putting together a series um, on what does it mean to decolonize psychedelics and, and Rupa's work has been really influential. So thank you for naming both those extraordinary humans. Um, but really thinking about like, what does it mean to understand oneself as part of a bigger whole? And what is our responsibility to that larger whole? And I think even this... Um, Sometimes what's used as this term of like, you know, oneness or universality is a way of even erasing, like dishonoring or escaping some of what you said. It's like a spiritual bypass to be like, oh, no, we're the same. It's like we're not the same. <laughs> you know, I'm a brown woman who grew up in this body and immigrated to the, you know, to the Southern United States, to the Bible Belt and had to endure what I endured. And you, you know, Dennis, you're a white man having your lived experiences and showing up. And like, there is resonance between us, but like that there's a way to, I think, honor our individuality as well as holding um, this recognition that like, we all do have this capacity to do you know, extraordinary, you know, 
enact extraordinary healing as well as extraordinary harm. So, so for me, I'm really trying to like balance both of these things and recognize the individual responsibility I have to the collective, as well as recognizing the responsibility that we have as a collective body to individual groups on, you know, on this earth. No, I hope that makes sense. I just think it's like a dynamic relationship. It's not like one or the other, but this hyper individuality that you're speaking to this, like, is just so prominent right now, you know, and that, that idea that you can, you know, plop yourself down in Costa Rica as one example, you know, not even maybe even seeing an actual Costa Rican person, but do your work at a yoga retreat, you know, with a medicine that came from another place, you know, um, and then you're going to go home and you would have never interacted with the people who actually, and the lineages, you know, that stewarded those medicines, that stewarded those traditions, that helped you achieve that healing. Like, I do think that's like, that's part of what capitalism wants us to do is to see ourselves as uniquely separate from each other, you know, so we're not held accountable for the harm that we do. And along those lines, it feels like that is the the wet dream of a lot of psychedelic capitalists to think that you would just need to keep coming back and taking more psychedelics and that would heal you. And I've fallen into that before, as many people have, where you think, wow, this was a tremendously profound, transformative, beneficial, uplifting experience for me. And then, you know, your life doesn't go the way you think it's everything's all roses when you're in this ecstatic visionary state. And then two weeks later, you still got to do the dishes and take out the garbage and you, your boss is yelling at you and this, that and the other. And you think, wow, maybe I need to just do a bigger dose. And I think, you know, that's that's one of the things I've noticed with like these some of the retreat centers is the incentive to, yeah, we need you to just keep coming back. Or maybe in some ways that's where microdosing fits in, where it's like, well, if you take this every day, you can improve. But like, I haven't really heard any microdosing companies or people talk about like when you stop microdosing, you know, like at what point? Do you, or is this just a lifelong practice that you do? So, of course, I, I generally favor cognitive liberty, but I'm aware that we should be having these discussions about, like, what's the end goal of psychedelic healing for a lot of people? And for the sort of corporate psychedelic sphere, how do you expect to make money on something that maybe people only need to do a handful of times in their life? And it's different for anyone. So those were just some thoughts I wanted to offer top of mind. But one of the things that I've changed in terms of my relationship with psychedelics over the years is I've backed off the sense of evangelism that when I first took them, as many people who are new to psychedelics, I kind of wanted to push them on my friends and on my family. I thought, because this has been so powerful for me, I think that you should have this experience. And I wasn't really cognizant of all of the other lived experiences that people had. So when it's like, what do you mean? I had a great time. It was this awesome. It's like, what do you mean you had a bad time? What do you mean you're, you're crying and you don't like it and you want it to stop? Like, those are very, you know, different things for different people. So that's one of the ways I've sort of backed off of trying to like push this on people. And now I try to just present my experiences and share them and people, you know, if they want to ask me questions, great, but I'm not here to evangelize necessarily. How are some of the ways that you maybe have changed your perspectives on psychedelics from when you first encountered them to today? Yeah. You know, I think it's like definitely, um, that first experience I had, again, I want to say healing experience because I'd like had many experiences preceding it that just were not, you know, that felt really good, but didn't like get in there and do the work um, or I didn't do the work. But I think like what was so interesting for me was that I realized very early on that 
not everyone saw like this amazing experience I had had that was such a gift to me as like received it as a gift. They're like, oh yeah, cool. And I was like, no, 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 wait. Like this literally changed my whole life, like reconfigured my whole being. How are you just like, oh yeah, cool. Good for you. You know, so that helped me realize that it was really sacred, the experience. And then I think also, you know, working on the, you know, the fireside project hotline and hearing the calls that would come in. Right. So I was able to experience a continuum of um, like not experience, but receive a continuum of experiences that people were having and knew like, it's not always rosy. And it's, in fact, it's really, really hard. And aside from that first, like kind of like angelic healing experience, I've been trudging uphill with every subsequent experience I've had. I've had some really deep awarenesses that are also incredibly painful. Um, and I've learned how to see those as a gift as well. And, you know, I've also been able to, because of how I've changed and just kind of shifted how I move in the world, like this has really been extraordinary for me as someone who like really touched into, you know, very strong suicidal ideation. So to not be in that place anymore and to hardly even recognize who was that person who was counting out the number of Xanax it would take to kill herself, like that's like really profound, not only for me, but for my family. But also, I, you know, my 78 year old mom has had the chance to work with psychedelics and the healing that we have had is like so precious to us. So I would say we're not like evangelizing it, but we are really open to speaking about it because it's been such an extraordinary path to healing, not only for us as individuals, but for us jointly. Um, so I guess, yeah, I. I think it's really interesting what you're mentioning. And I think what often gets overlooked and especially in that capitalist model where it's like, okay, now more and more and more is the role and the agency that we have and the work that we have to do, you know, that, that fundamentally this is like a process of healing and that we have these extraordinary catalysts, I think, in, in these psychedelic substances, but like you can use it, you can go back again and again and again, right. You can like, get a colonic every month instead of cleaning up your diet, or you can do the work, right. And like, start to treat yourself a little bit better. And I've really found like the balance of those things. And everyone that I know who has worked with psychedelics for a significant amount of time has actually done, like finds themselves doing less and less and less. And maybe that's just in my circle, you know, but it's like, what's the least amount of medicine I need to like really help me in this moment and support me in this moment. And that's, that's where I am because like my relationship with those substances has changed so dramatically. Like I'm, I'm not interested in like shooting off into the stratosphere. I'm interested in being as present as possible for the healing that I need to do and the healing that I need to do for myself, for my community, for this planet. Because I think that's another thing that's really come up for me as someone who, you know, spent like, I mean, I, I kind of gave up my life to write a book about the loss of biodiversity and food and agriculture, like my tenure job. I sold my house. I gave him my, my, my car. I spent five years on six continents connecting with the world around me and feeling the broken heartedness of the, you know, the climate catastrophe we're in of biodiversity loss, these sort of like conjoined challenges that we're facing. And 
psychedelics have helped me heal that relationship as well. Um, because I was in such a state of brokenheartedness, I couldn't find my way to be again, present to the work I needed to do the work of repair. So, um, so I think that's the interesting thing. It's going to be people actively saying like, I have enough now, you know, which capitalism is not going to advocate for, but we need to advocate for in ourselves. Like I'm at a really good place right now. I don't need more, you know, what does someone else need? Um, and I hope that that sentiment will start to filter through, not just like the amount of medicine that we're taking, you know, but the way we consume in general, um, and the way we, you know, we connect with others. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've learned that over the years, I suppose. And I'm probably in that latter camp you mentioned about doing less and spacing them out more. And one of the things I feel very fortunate about is to have come across psychedelics pretty early at a seminal point in my life where I was already quite cognitively developed, headed off to college, and that there wasn't a lot of pressure or promotion around them. And it feels like that's the difference today. Today, there's a lot of promotion. There's a lot of hype. There's all these conferences. And I think social media exacerbates that. And it has people thinking like, I need to be a thought leader and I need to do more. And this person has this circle and this person. And that's part of what informed the satire that I started doing is just being around communities who are like, well, we do ayahuasca on Saturday and then we do bufo on Monday and then Tuesday is mushroom day. And like these are, you know, communities, which, again, I, I choose to have a sense of humor about it. But I wonder about what the impact of this is you know, years from now. And one could easily make the counter argument that, hey, maybe it's better than what's happening right now in the world at large, that it is truly disruptive. And, you know, people will sort this out over time. But like, we're in this period of disruption, of uncertainty. And I keep coming back to that sense of, we think we know more than we do. I think humans love to feel like we're in control, we're in charge. That doesn't exonerate us from having to take responsibility from the situations we're in. But there's something very humbling and feeling like, oh, all the weight is not on my shoulders. Like maybe I'm not as important in the scheme of things as I thought I was. So that's some of the things I'm, I'm coming to learn and my mind's open. And um, part of why I do these podcasts and share content is to be challenged, to have my perspectives challenged and to evolve them. Because I hope that people still have enough plasticity in them to evolve and change their minds occasionally, because what kind of world would this look like if nobody could ever change their mind? So one thing I'd love to dive into, and you know, feel free to interject at any point, but the label of psychedelics, is this an appropriate label? It just means so many different things. It seems to encompass this massive, broad canopy of different experiences. And for example, you have mm -hmm. Amanita mushrooms, and now MDMA is being billed as psychedelic and ketamine is psychedelic, but then so is DMT. It just really ties in these, these massive diversity of experiences. And then when you talk to some indigenous folks, like one of the panels I was at in Denver, a gentleman from one of the tribes in Colorado said, we don't use the word psychedelic. I've never used that word. Like what is, what, what is psychedelic? And I sort of feel the same way, like going over to India or going to Mexico or wherever, like you don't hear people use this label psychedelic and it can often be applied to things that it's questionable if that's truly psychedelic. So what's your take on this label psychedelic? Is this here to stay as, you know, what are the shortcomings of the label and is it an effective label for what we're talking about? I'm no thought leader. So like, I'm not qualified to say much about this, but I think, and I'm also like always curious, like why did those people experience ego dissolution or how did you come out of your trip? Like you have parodied so many times being like, Ooh, now I'm going to capitalize on this. And I mean, I can't remember any of the funny stuff that you've done, but it's like, I'm going to build 10 IO retreats now, you know, like that's what God told me, you know, <laughs> like I don't, 
I don't quite get it because like in my experiences, it's always shrinking down. I feel small. I feel awe. I feel humbled. Like I come out of my experiences with just like a different kind of perspective on the world. So when you talk about like changing your mind, you know, like that's what I feel like that neuroplasticity. I mean, these are all Western terms that we're putting on these experiences, right? Like connection to God maybe would be a, a way I would rather frame it for my own point of reference, you know, but I know that can be really like uncomfortable for other people. To get back to your your comment on psychedelics, like I remember being in a in a forum when I was just doing research on like, you know, Asian folks and psychedelics. And I remember seeing a conversation on Facebook like, we don't have a word for psychedelics in Mandarin, right? Like we don't even use that term, just like you said about India. So I think it's just very interesting language. I mean, I'm a journalist, right? So, or was or whatever, like, <laughs> but it's malleable. Like we shape, like our world is shaped by the, you know, words that we use, but those words, their meaning changes over time. So for me, like, I think, um, I guess I'm less concerned about the term broadly, I think it's a shorthand and it's just what we use now in much the same way. Like, you know, I've been a practitioner of Vipassana meditation for like almost 25 years. Right. And, and now the word that's thrown about all the time is mindfulness, right. Which is basically Vipassana, which is basically, or loving kindness instead of metta bhavana. And so at a certain point, you just use the word because it's the word that like you and I are going to understand together. Do you know what I mean? I don't have to like go back into the etymology of this, that or the other. But but for me, I think the term I prefer for myself, again, only is who I'm speaking for is medicine um, or sacrament even. But that's not a word I ever use. But like the, the idea of imbuing this with something that is healing, something that is sacred, like and that's how this presents for me. Um, and that's kind of where I choose to like focus is on if, if it's something that is sacred, if it is something that is medicine, then it's not something we're just consuming. Like we'd eat, you know, I don't know, a bowl of pasta. Do you know what I mean? Or like over and over and over, we're not getting the hit over and over. That's not, that's not how we work with medicine. That's not how we work with something that is sacred, that we show reverence or we pay greater attention or we use this in smaller amounts. And so that's why I choose those words instead of psychedelic, because I think psychedelic just means like way too many things for way too many people. And to me, the first thing that comes to mind when I hear psychedelic often is industry, right? And that's people need to make a living, but that's not where my focus and mindset are around around these substances. Yeah, I think a lot of people who had psychedelic experiences or mushroom experiences or whatever before this current renaissance and the social media and, and the media narrative creating the phenomenon around the emergent psychedelic industry, a lot of us who had those experiences, it actually pushed us away from wanting to capitalize and, and focus on business and commerce and really pay attention to the miracle which is another loaded word, but the actual miracle of being alive and all of these wonderful relationships, that's what I think about. Like I remember periods of time living in San Francisco, certainly having my mindset shaped by a lot of the politics and the groups I was embedded in, but of, of really trying to like divest myself of wealth and trying to be like more embedded in a community, almost that like agrarian, utopian, hippie dream in some ways, or, you know, of a, a more like back to the land, we need to get away from that. But it's kind of funny in the sense that 
certain people have the opposite experience where they're like, hey, how can we really, how can we milk this? Like, how can we triple the value here? Legit, I am so confounded by them. And I think what that reminds me is we go in as the totality of who we are, right? Like it's not, and you got to keep working at it. Like if you're, you know, again, I, I'm not trying to disparage anyone here, but if you're someone who's really focused on making money as your core value, I don't think all of a sudden, like, an, you know, sitting with grandmother Aya is all of a sudden make you someone who doesn't care about that. Like we have to do the work to be different, better, more evolved in who we are, to recognize the impact that we have, right, um, on each other and on the planet. And and that, like, all the, the medicines can do is open the door or be a catalyst, but we have agency to choose whether or not we're going to heed, you know, what comes up for us or heal what comes up for us or change as a result of what comes up for us. I don't, I don't believe that this is just, a, you know, a I don't know. I, I guess I'm saying what you're saying, but I guess I just feel some of the ways these have been presented, like you said before, is more of this PR, like this is going to solve every problem, right? But Nazis are still not seeing and polluters are still polluting, right? And they call themselves shamans. They self-appoint, they self-anoint, right? And they build their retreat centers by deforesting the land, <laughs> by disempowering the people, but namaste, you know? And that's just like, it's just confounding. It's just, to me, it it's like you've, you've really disrespected the medicines and you've disrespected yourself. It's been very interesting for me over the last two years to be invited to the table and to these conferences with a lot of these more corporadelic, venture fund type people. And I've really taken it upon myself to be diplomatic and to try to empathize and understand and bridge build. Cause I just think there's in general, a lack of that right now. There's a lot of polarity and coming from the underground and someone, you know, who's been involved in the underground economy and whatnot for many years, then all of a sudden, you know, being at these legal psychedelic conferences with biotech investors and whatnot, it's been really interesting to interface with them and communicate with them. And one of the things that I keep noticing, yeah, is just, I think, the need for diplomacy. But I wanted to call out a panel I went to recently in Miami that I thought was very self-aware and impressive. And it was a venture fund and a very well-funded organization. And they were talking about the psychedelic zeitgeist. And they were like, how do we prepare for the future of psychedelics? Because the psychedelic zeitgeist of New York City or Los Angeles is vastly different from the psychedelic zeitgeist of the Congo Basin or of the Peruvian Amazon. And I just thought that that thought, just the fact that they're putting thought into that to me is very inspiring. So I'd love to ask you about the psychedelic zeitgeist of South Asia. I feel like so much of talk about psychedelics and the psychedelic renaissance, and I've called this out a lot on the program, it's really focused clinical trials, US, Europe, Israel, maybe Australia, right? You don't ever hear about a clinical trial that's happening in continental Africa, right? Or in India, or it's just kind of like, oh, that part of the world, like the, the psychedelic renaissance for all intents and purposes is highly localized in the US, Europe, and a handful of other places. But what is the attitude towards these substances and experiences in the South Asian community? Yeah, well, I know that you were in India recently, so you could probably tell me a thing or two. I, I can 
You know, what I can speak to is like more of a diasporic experience as a South Asian race in the United States. Um, many of the folks that I have encountered are are in the global north, just to generally speak, right? And then I think what you're talking about is like, what of the global south? What of, and, and when I say global south, it's like there are places in Europe that are global south. There are places in the United States that are global south, right? Like that, um, that helps me to understand like where the schism is. Um, but, but I think that's a really interesting inquiry. I, I blanch a little bit at the word zeitgeist, but that's me. But I think the question that we're asking is like, what can these psychedelic substances help support people in healing, turn on, ignite, you know, facilitate all over the world? What do those, what does that look like? What does that feel like? And, you know, for me, my hope is, as I've started to um, build connections and do a little support work in India, is that it looks like a returning to who we are because, you know, we touched on this briefly, the idea of colonization. I mean, most global South communities are heavily colonized people. And what that has done is, is I think in many ways, um, been a colonization of the body, the mind and the spirit. And what I mean by that is like this idea that, um, West is best, you know, that, that there is a hierarchy in everything. And at the top of that hierarchy, are, you know, our Westerners, our, um, you know, our, our men, our able-bodied folks, our heteronormative folks, our, you know, white folks, that, that this is really what these various experiences, I think, offer us are an opportunity to understand the healing that is already in our lineage. Um, I think cannabis is a great example of that. That is one of our most sacred plants, you know, in India, one of our gods, Shiva is like, you know, celebrated by ingesting bong, um, you know, that, that, that these are sacraments and that we know these are sacraments and it's a matter of remembering them. And what my deepest hope is, you know, whether it's, and I mean, and also there are a lot of communities all over the world, the global South communities that have never lost these traditions. So like, what does this look like in Peru? What does this look like, you know, in Gabon? Well, I hope to hell it never looks like necessarily a Western clinical trial. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like, that to me feels like an imposition. Not to say that there shouldn't be ways of understanding and measuring um, what healing and progress look like. And we immigrated here through NIH. My dad was a cancer researcher. So I believe very strongly in the power of science to legitimize and to support and to heal people. But I think stuffing everything into a medical model, a Western medical model, is really treacherous. And so what my hope is, is that the zeitgeist of, you know, the Congo or the zeitgeist of, you know, uh, I don't know, um, Ecuador or the zeitgeist of Pakistan is a version of this that understands what our you know, um, entheogenic experiences look like what our medicines are and that the medicine used broadly. Right. So maybe that is Vipassana. Maybe that is an Amanita mushroom. Maybe that is cannabis, but that we start to, uh, maybe return to the idea of celebrating and uplifting, I guess, instead of psychedelics exclusively, um, altered states of consciousness more broadly. Sure. So I just had Mudu Baki on the program. He's a wonderful entheogenic researcher from Detroit who has been over to Africa six times on research trips. 
And he touched on what you just delved into a little bit, which is about these lineages that use different sacred plants and power plants, and they gatekeep them now. So when people say, how come there's no mushroom traditions in Africa? Well, he has shared with me that he's come across four tribes, and he won't reveal any identifying information where or who, because of the context of colonialism, that that's the first tradition to get attacked is the connection to the sacred the rituals, those are the ones that get stripped. So I've actually heard this from a number of people that I would consider very credible, knowledgeable sources in different parts of the world who say, oh, there are tribes in this particular region that still work with mushrooms or still work with visionary plants, but people don't know about it because they saw what happened to other tribes in the region. They saw what happened in Huatla de Jimenez and various places. And one other consideration that's come to mind for me is this idea that uh, some Anglo tribes, if you will, have entheogenic mushroom traditions, for example, like in Norway or in Lapland, and that nobody, none of the people that I know, myself included, have really tried to track those down. There's something about fetishizing or exoticizing, romanticizing, like in South America or in India. And this idea too, like when hippies went to India and then they achieved whatever they were after. And then they just kind of stuck around after that. They're like, what do we do now? Like it's 1985 and we're still here. And uh, so those are some interesting considerations, but specifically thinking about like the Sami people and in Norway about like, how come we don't have more people trying to revive and rekindle and pay attention to these traditions uh, and everybody's going to San Jose del Pacifico in Oaxaca, and there's a whole entheogenic tourism industry in Iquitos. And, you know, these are broad questions, but I suppose we're you know better talking about them now than never. So let's extend this and talk about decolonization of psychedelics. Decolonization, decolonialism, it's something I've been aware of for a number of years as a former high school educator at a quite radical school, and that was our charge to decolonize education. So instead of teaching standard books, we didn't have textbooks, we were teaching Marvin Gaye and we were, you know, reading different the poetry of bell hooks and, and so on and so forth. And I think that this is a very loaded term for a lot of people because you could have companies come out saying, oh, we do reciprocity and we're doing this and that. But of course, there's a lot of, we could call it fairy dusting, just like roll the term out. And this is one of the questions I brought up on the panel we just had about like, what does true decolonization of the psychedelic renaissance look like from your perspective? Gosh, well, first of all, I need to see that because I'm writing a series on this for Double Blind, asking this same question. What does it mean to decolonize psychedelics? I saw this in my environmental work, right? Everybody was like greenwashing, talking about like carbon credits as one example, or, you know, like I'm going to offset all of these things, right? And now it's like, I've got, you know, I've got a reciprocity plan. It's like, well, what does that mean in tangible terms? What does that look like? And are you striking at a deconstruction of a system that caused these problems to begin with? Or are you just sticking a well on it? Do you know what I mean? Or are you just like, like building a school, but with no understanding of why people didn't have access to education to begin with, right? So I think like, we really need to strike at the system here. And that's what decolonization at its heart should be about. But before I go further there, I want to just mention one other thing, just touching into what you just shared about, like, why are we not talking about the Sami people, right, um, in Lapland? Or, and and wh why is this, like, hyper-focus on global South communities? I also think there's something really interesting there around commodification and money, right? Like, well, it's cheaper to go to these other places. It's stuff, we, there's already a history of exploitation in those places. And there's already a history of like co-optation in those places. So again, I think of all the, the white folks when you were mentioning India who went to India, stuck around or maybe came back here and then took everything they learned, took on an Indian name 
and then all of a sudden became their own like self-anointed guru, right? And then made like buckets off selling books and this and that and the other. Like, and never talk about who their teachers were and never talk about the lineage that they came from. And I think part of that like erasure of knowledge or that that closeting or quieting of knowledge is absolutely what you talked about. You know, the guest who mentioned like, we're not naming names here. We're keeping this to ourselves. We've seen what happens when we share, right? And this is something that occurs, you know, across the board. Like if we talk about biodiversity in general, like um, we look at Ethiopia and Teff, we look at even coffee, we look at all these commodity crops like cacao, you know, which becomes chocolate, like the, the, the places that stewarded this, the places that have grown these um, substances across the world, whether it's food, for medicine, for fuel, for fodder, they have all seen these things taken away and the money has never returned to these places. The support, the credit, the acknowledgement has never returned to these places. But I'll add one more layer here before I move on uh, or move back to talking about decolonization, which is just also that the English written word is key, right? It's king queen here. So if something has been passed down through an oral tradition, if something has been passed down in a, a language that is not English, I think all, also that stuff is quote unquote lost, right? Or at least not seen by maybe a, a huge portion of the folks involved in the psychedelic conversation, because it's not in a language that is the one that they're most familiar with. So I do think that these practices are alive and well, but I think because so many of us have been taught that like the best things in the world are the things that come from the West, whether it's Western thought or a Western product, um, that we've tended to place as secondary our own traditions, you know, even something like Ayurveda, it's like, or yoga until these things were filtered again through a Western lens. And then they came back to many places. Um, some people of that who look like me of Asian descent didn't really embrace them wholeheartedly or saw them in a different light, right? Or became proud of them in a new way. I've seen my grandmother chant prayers and do, you know, Surya Namaskar to the sun, ever since I was like a small child, like a toddler, you know, I didn't know what she was doing when I was a toddler, but you get what I'm saying, you know, but then it's like, when I became a yoga teacher, I learned from white yoga instructor. And that's when I felt a sense of pride around this thing that had been part of my life always, you know, and only now looking back, do I feel the grief of what it meant to not be able to accept what was mine until it was colonized and returned to me. So I think this point of decolonization is really for me, a big part of it is parsing out, not you, Dennis, but you generally, when you say decolonization, do you just mean like having a more diverse population? Because that's not the same thing, right? Like just adding an, you know, an Asian person and a black person into your mix doesn't mean you just decolonized anything. That might mean you diversified something, right? Um, can we even have a decolonization practice within a Western medical model. Like that is in and of itself, right? An expression of colonized healing. So I'm still sitting in the question of all of this. That's why I'm doing a series so I can talk to a bunch of like super knowledgeable elders and, you know, folks in this space about this to understand what this means. But I think it's really much like reciprocity, it's becoming a buzzword. And then it's also becoming a word now we see with everything going on in Gaza, that's it's becoming like a, um, maybe for some, a derogatory term or a term associated with a certain political ideology. I'm really hopeful that we can interrogate the use of that word and help people to better understand like 
what their practice should look like and what it, it truly means to decolonize medicine, to decolonize um, a space that you're holding a medicine ceremony in, to decolonize or understand what it would mean to even decolonize healing in general um, and move from that place, that much more informed place, rather than just kind of pulling it out as the word that you have to use now. I found satire to be very effective at attacking systems, right? That's something that I always try to punch up with. I think that's one of the distinguishing characteristics of satire is to be able to deconstruct power structures and punch up a little bit. And that's something I'm actively exploring. It's kind of accidentally on purpose, I say, you know, it's quite a nice way to approach it because I have deeply immersed myself in a lot of radical literature. And I, I realized that a lot of uh, humor seems to work really well. It's very effective. Like it can be very insidious and very cynical, but for whatever reason, it's disarming to people. Like if you were to critique someone and, you know, they'll put up a wall a lot of the time. That's something I've seen a lot as someone who receives criticism. And it's like, maybe you don't actually accomplish your objective in the critique because this person put a wall up. But when you use humor, like I think of Sasha Baron Cohen or some of these characters, like it actually kind of disarms them. And, you know, I've, I've got these corporate people now who are like, oh, we love it when you roast us. I'm like, I don't know if that's a good thing or, you know, did I, did I succeed there? But like at the same time, um, I'd, I'd like to think that people are self-aware, not everyone, obviously, and that if we can really focus on systems, uh, you call out bad actors is important, but like focusing more on the system rather than one particular symptom of it, I think personally is what I'm what I'm going for right now. And along those lines, who are some people that are doing the right things in the psychedelic space as far as you're concerned? People that you're very excited about working with, that you're inspired by, who, who are some of the good actors that we should be paying attention to, platforming and amplifying who are doing work in the psychedelic ecosystem right now? Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, let me, you just gave me a lot there. And I have to say like, I fangirl, like I am so excited to be talking to you. I was so nervous mm. because like you do this thing that I think is like, brilliant which is a, like a super smart takedown like that is self-deprecating and that is hilarious but I am super curious before I like answer your question like I, I mean you are sitting at the table with those very same people that you're like kind of taking the piss out of and I'm curious do they get it like are they actually seeing the folly of what they're doing because I see it so clearly in in some of the videos that you make and like I'm just wondering how do they respond? Like, do they realize that you're, I don't want to say you're laughing at them because that's not what you're doing, but you're, you're disarming them. You're, 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 I mean, you are pointing the finger at what they're doing. And I just wonder how they respond. I've been really humbled by the reception. And I think a lot of it, it just hits them in the wallet. It's not just me. It's them realizing that their, you know, forecast for profit maximization is not it's not, uh, there's no obligation for reality to adapt to their mental projections and their models. And I think that's what hurts the most. And you start to see this, like companies are going out of business, companies are folding. So I think it's, it's also more of a sense of just for people who are on the fence or who are navigating this, or, or it's not really like, I don't expect these companies or these you know people, corporate overlords, if you will, to really take me seriously, because to a person with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And that's how I see when you meet these people, it's like, maybe they, they're not even listening to you, right? They're just like, they're thinking about Q4, about profit maximization, but it's really these people who are on the fence. Like I think about, you know, Gen Z and people who are 
navigating the mainstreaming of psychedelics in such a way that we didn't have to deal with in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of people, myself, I got some white in the beard. Like I didn't have social media or even a cell phone when I first became interested in psychedelics. I had to hit the library, you know? It's a radically different landscape right now. And, and that's part of why I try to saturate social media with a lot of this messaging is having been a high school teacher before, I've seen how people form their thoughts about subject matter. And when you go on social media, you're, you know, reading headlines and you're new to psychedelics, like it's, I've seen this one metaphor used over and over that I think one person said about how like, when you take psychedelics, it's like, there's all these ski tracks on the mountain in your brain. And then the snow fills in. And like, I've just heard that recycled and repasted and recut. And I'm like, there's just so much nuance lacking there. But yet that's how, you know, monkey see monkey do like, oh, yeah, this is good. Now I'm going to start a channel. I'm going to do. So really, I think that's my target audience is like the people who are navigating, who are kind of unsure how to feel about it. And as with anything, like people look like me, they're like, I don't want to be an idiot. Like, I don't want to. I don't. Is that what I look like when I'm you know trying to put together a ceremony after I just had my first microdose last year and now I've got a course and a program. So I think that's it. But as far as the actual, you know, corporate overlords, if you will, I'm really keen on just like having dialogues with them. Cause I think it's really easy to surround yourself with yes people, you know, and it, what's really hard is when I can be fair and critique someone, but be like, Hey, I don't hate you. You know, like I, I'm not, I don't really hate you. Like I just, this is how I see it. And it's almost like they don't know how to treat me because they're like, Oh, I thought you were our friend. And then you just criticized our conference. We did. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to offer a nuanced and fair perspective. Um, so that's my take. Right. And you do it. I feel like you use your positionality so well. Like I see you as calling out what needs to be called out in ways that will be heard and received um, where someone like me couldn't do that and, and have that same effect. So I like, I'm really, really grateful for what you do. And especially as I see more people flocking to Asia, you know, I really like knowing that there's someone out there who's seeing like the folly of this or the insanity of this and speaking to it, not only for Asia, but for the entire global South, you know, and, and like, they're just, I think that's really just singularly you right now um, who's doing that. So, so super big. Thank you for that. Um, the people I'm really focused on are those who are committed to creating models that will ensure that everyone has access to care and doing it in a way that is unapologetically community focused. Um, uh, you know, the people who come to mind are folks like Wilhelmina DeCastro. I mean, these aren't names these aren't names like Michael Pollan, right? These aren't names that people are going to know. And I actually, when I do any sort of conversation now, I try to ask people to think about like, who do you know? Like, think about psychedelics for a moment. Think about who influences you and what are their names? And it'll be people like Rick Doblin, you know, it'll be like even, you know, Roland Griffiths or Michael Pollan. And that's wonderful that you've had anyone influence you, but, but where are, anybody, you know, outside of like the white male focus or white male gaze like that, that has like informed what your thinking is about this practice that you hold as important, sacred, lucrative, whatever. Right. And so, um, so, you know, so, so the folks that are really on my radar right now are like Yudia Selidwin, who, you know, helped, you know, with a group of folks wrote, you know, a paper on like ethical guidelines for engaging with indigenous people in psychedelic research, or, you know, Jennifer Andruli, you know, indigenous 
you know, medicine woman or Kim Hapston, who's, you know, working up in Canada. These are the folks that I'm going to be having conversations with, you know, people who are maybe outside of psychedelics, but who are always still so influential to how I'm thinking, you know, Kai Cheng Tom or, you know, or Rupa, as you were mentioning earlier, um, Elnor Ladda, who wrote a piece for Double Blind that was so helpful for me calling out colonization, like the people who are speaking an unapologetic truth to what's going on right now. Diana Negrin, you know, who works with the Wijadika Research Center. I mean, these are people who I think have, have shown time and time again, like that their greatest commitment here is to the healing of community and to the healing of, of society as a whole, not to, um, I guess, to building up an industry. And I think those are two different things and two different perspectives. So so those are the people who are really influencing me. Um, Alma Institute, you know, an organization that's leading trainings and also trying to really build a decolonized model of support in Oregon. Um, you know, who else is really like turning me on right now? Psychedelic Legacy, uh, you know, a program that's not really a, like a psychedelic training program, but a program that's really trying to shed light on some of these underrepresented conversations um, led by two brothers, you know, Joaquin and Esteban Orozco. Um, these are the people who are like, in my mind and filling my heart and really helping me to understand how I want to move forward. Totally. I got to answer that question too. I've been unabashedly favoring and bullish on Oakland Haifei for a long time. And part of it is I've been to the events and I've been very fortunate to participate in them. And they really do bring out a decolonized model and a diverse model. And that's something that's pretty clearly lacking at a lot of the bigger conferences. It's like, I appreciate some conference organizers make an effort to do it. But I think there's a difference between when you're driven by the bottom line finance versus when you're driven by disruptive social change. And that's what I see happening with Reggie and with Mary and Oakland Haifei and so on and so forth. And like actually seeing the impact in the communities they work in. And whenever these rhetorical kind of fear-mongering stories come up around psychedelics as they inevitably do and have recently about like this person took psychedelics and acted erratically and did this and we should rethink the way that we frame all this i think about former gang members that i've met at the oakland hyphae conferences who attribute their mushroom experiences to them leaving the gang and becoming a you know a good father for their kids and things like that i'm like how come those stories don't get amplified right and like so and of course it brings up the whole topic of psychedelic exceptionalism, which I've increasingly been leaning into policy and thinking about what this actually means. And I've got a skit I want to do in the near future where I often will be flying internationally for a conference or this or that or the other. And I'm flying into the US and in customs, they'll always say, and what are you doing? What's your purpose here? What, what, are, you, what are you in Miami for? I'm here for a psychedelic conference. And then the customs agent goes, I thought psychedelics were illegal. It's like, oh, no, no, no. We're white. We're just, you know, this is a business thing. Like, it's not, it's, it's only illegal for certain people. Like, we're allowed to do stuff. It, it is kind of funny to be like the psychedelic industry. But like, what, what industry, first of all? Like, these are illicit criminalized substances that there are still people going to jail for. And, you know, people... Uh, and if you have the money for the research and you launch the clinical trial, you're allowed to do it. And that extends to social media, as you may or may not be aware. I was recently deplatformed really surprisingly and randomly, like out of nowhere, no strikes. And yet there are social media, there are companies advertising ketamine in targeted ads. That's a controlled substance. I've got six screenshots for an article I'm working on of actual psilocybin being boosted by meta boosted ads, companies who have paid for ads that are pushed by the platform. And it just creates this cognitive dissonance and this kind of 
clusterfuck, if you will, around who, what can we say? Who can say it? Whose word is valid? Like if it comes from the, the venture biotech person, then it's okay. But if this other person's talking about it, it's illegal and it's criminalized. And of course, cannabis is a great representation of this too. You have dispensaries operating like Apple stores and people making hundreds of millions or billions of dollars while other people are sitting incarcerated for up to a lifetime or you know, incredible, in some cases in Singapore, being executed. Like we have this incredible cognitive dissonance around how we approach these substances. And my final thought on that is this is where having a sense of humor and patience will come in because I really think we're going to see a lot more turbulence and chaos over the next few years, just at large in the world. And the way to safeguard against that, I think is developing a sense of humor and a robust community. And, and I'm, I'm actively working on that, but yes, things are crazy. Everyone I talk to these days is like, man, I could really use a pause. I could use like a, a nice deep rest and the, the systems we live in don't incentivize or even allow for that a lot of the time. No. And that is so interesting when you say that it's like, I've, I've had experiences, um, microdosing and then also heard from others like, wow, I just was so tired afterwards. And I was like, yeah, cause you know what? We're being invited to rest. Like we're all exhausted. And you know, what comes up for me when you talk about this notion of exceptionalism, like you could have stopped it, like coming into customs and being like, I'm white. And they would have been like, weaving, you know, like waving you through. Right. But at the same time, you did just get deplatformed and it really like put me on alert around that a little bit. But I think about like, I served on a jury for a kid who was going to get thrown in jail, you know, thrown in prison for a dime bag of weed. And then I, you know, fast forward 20 years and I'm in Denver and it's just like all these, you know, all these like young white kids, like make, minting money. And I have never forgotten. And I, I feel this so strongly, like, how that exceptionalism, exceptionalism plays out everywhere, right? Whether it's like the Indian yoga teacher sitting in his, you know, ashram in India, but then like the white person who comes in and makes, you know, millions of bucks or the white guy who's selling weed while the black kid goes to jail, that like, there are always ways to reinstall that hierarchy. But for me, you know, those, like you mentioned the word community. And I think that's so important when you said I'm building a community. Like, I think that to me is the bottom line. Like, who are we accountable to? Who, what we do, who is it for? And if what we're accountable to, and I say this with an MBA that I'm still paying for, but like, if what we're accountable to is a bottom line or quarterly returns or shareholders versus stakeholders, versus being accountable to each other, being accountable to community, like that's Oakland Haife, right? That, that's what you're sharing about Reggie. That's what I would share about Charlotte James, you know, who's also going to be part of this conversation I'm doing, hopefully, you know, that like that, that's where the, the magic is. That's where the healing is. That's where we'll really be able to use these substances that are use the word, I think, miracle before, like that can have miraculous effect but that we can use them in ways that are responsible because we remember we're accountable to each other, you know, not to money, but to, to each other. Yeah. You know, I've, I've come to this position of thinking around my own contributions and occasionally being a little bit outlandish and outspoken and feeling a sense of like having earned it by being underground and marginalized and mitigated for so long. Like my 
propensity and my devotion to psychedelics and mushrooms in particular after my early experiences were just dismissed for so long. And I, and I understand that's how a lot of people feel, especially coming from different backgrounds where it's just like, you're not taken seriously. You're not allowed to talk about it. Nobody wants to hear about this. And now, you know, literally 15 years after all of a sudden people in my community are like, wow, okay, so wait, this is kind of legitimate what you've been saying, you know, and there's a sense of like vindication. And I'm, I'm dealing with that right now because just for so long, I was just so used to being like the oddball, the guy who fucked his life up because he didn't go straight and follow the straight and narrow line that he was supposed to. Like he went off and, you know, went down and, and learned about witch doctors and, and about psychedelics. And like, and now out of nowhere, like that's the most popular thing in the world, right? It's like kind of a, a really amazing thing to see happen and be like, wow, man, this is, it wasn't just me. This is for a lot of people. And, uh, and that's the sort of insights I want to contribute is like, hey, have a lot of experiences and lived experience in the West specifically in trying to reconcile these really profound transformative experiences with having to work a regular job and commute in traffic and be a part of these meta systems that really I was trying to disrupt from the get go. Cause it's just what happens. I think psychedelics are disruptive inherently. They can be very disruptive. What you do with that is up to you. But one thing's for sure. If you give someone a, big dose of a psychedelic or plant experience, it's probably going to disrupt their thought patterns in some way. So the last bit I want to dive into is I just want to leave you with these last few minutes open for you to discuss what you're working on right now, what you're excited about, where people can find you. And and yeah, what are you working on right now? So many things, but like, I want to just respond to what you just said, which is just, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, we see that the, the war on drugs here, right, came up with this explosion around, you know, civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and, you know, the 60s, right? Like the, the use of these substances. There was a very resonant thing that happened in the late 1800s under British colonialism, you know, where people started to see that the impacts of cannabis in India, the sacred plant, was that people were starting to like speak more freely about how they felt about things, right? And I mean, th that process of criminalization, that process of... I don't know what the word is, like not schedule oneification because that isn't what happened back, you know, thousands of years ago, but it's still that, that stigmatization, that's the word, that stigmatization, like that was deliberate, right? There was a reason people were trying to shut you up, right? There was a reason that people were trying to like keep these, from, you know, people from having access to them. And I think this is the moment, this is the precious moment where we get to choose and say, are we going to use these substances? And I don't want to be too like whatever Pollyanna about it, but this is legit what I believe. Like we have this extraordinary opportunity and you asked what I'm working on. I'm working on a number of things, but the thing I'll share now, because it ties directly in is uh, a book on Asian mental health and psychedelics. Right. And the, the, the story that I'm working on right now is about my 78 year old mom who, you know, on one side, we're talking about a, a family that's been ripped apart by partition of India and Pakistan. This is also my dad's side. My dad had to walk from Pakistan to India, you know, when he was a child, you know, and then also being forced to leave Uganda in that same, let's just stay with the maternal line since I'm talking about my mom, like leave Uganda when Idi Amin came into power and forced all the Indians out. So my entire family splintered all over the world, some of whom couldn't find each other, you know, some of whom like lost their children. I mean, just all the, the travesty that we're seeing now, the tragedy that we're seeing now enacting out throughout the world, like this isn't new and this lives in my lineage. And you know, what has been triggered for my family by seeing what's happening in Gaza, like I was really 
struck by like the pain that my mom's going through, but the way that she is able to find liberation for herself and for her ancestors through psychedelics, like this language can seem a little woo, but it is the truth of what our experience has been. Someone who has held me at arm's length, we have held each other at arm's length for decades, finally coming together and truly understanding what it means to hold each other close and love each other. Like this is a substance that can, can has the potential to really heal and change us, right? And make us better. Like that's the choice that we have as a humanity. And we see this in real time right now. We have this extraordinary propensity to hurt each other or to help each other. And this is one of the tools that the world has offered us for coming back together. And I don't know, right? It's like you can use a hammer to like build a house or bonk someone on the head, you know? Um, and you can, you can use a mushroom to like make a bunch of money or to help heal people. And like, they don't have to always be mutually exclusive. So I'm sort of mixing my metaphors here and screwing things up. But, but what I'm trying to say is like, these are powerful, sacred, deeply um, powerful technologies that have been used for time immemorial. And like, here we are confronted with a choice of how we want to use them. And it's no different, I think, from so many choices that we're confronted with right now. Um, and it's just this like extraordinary inflection point. So I'm trying to like dig deep in my own personal inflection point and, and see like what, how psychedelics have helped change me and shape me and how I can express what I've gone through in ways that like tie into the science and help, you know, look at mental health challenges and physical challenges in the South Asian community and help us piece together what colonialism has torn apart and help us like return to each other and heal each other um, and find the support that we need, whether it's with psychedelics or, you know, with the other tools that are out there. Beautiful. And I remember you sharing some of that story at Marisa Sturz's storytelling event at Psychedelic Science, talking about your mother as well. So I'm looking forward to connecting more deeply with that as you continue to explore it and release it to the world. So Preeti Simran Sethi, thank you so much for coming on the Micropreneur podcast. It's been a true honor. And I hope you have a great day and that everybody listening to this can tap in with her work and can check out what's going on. Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram. I'm rebranding my website right now. So soon, PreetiSimranSethi.com. Right now, Simransethi. That was just a reclamation of Preeti, which is the my first name and the name my mother gave me, which means love. So um, lots of love to you, man, and take good care. Thank you. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, micopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Micopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.